So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to a new episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Yeah, I'm, I'm Nate Larkin here with our good friend David Hampton. Uh, I see you safely ensconced, uh, comfortably in, <laughs> ensconced there in your in your office. Has the practice I, been busy? <laughs> I am in my cocoon over here in uh, beautiful, beautiful Brentwood. Uh, yeah. It is busy, Nate. Um, you know, people are... Uh, uh, picking up, uh, at least in my in my uh, world, people are picking up the phone and really reaching out right now. Um, anxiety levels, as we all understand and know, mm-hmm. are you know pegging, and uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world. There always is, but we live with an illusion of certainty most of the time until we're yeah yeah yeah, know, yeah yeah absolutely jolted out of it. And right now, uh, the illusion of certainty is starting to really be an issue. So yeah. I, yeah, I'm busy. I'm seeing, uh, lots of people that are, uh, responding, uh, and trying to respond in healthy ways to what they see going on in the world. But, uh, and man, it's challenging though. You know, I was telling somebody this morning, most of my time, you know, very often is spent helping people define what is a, a true fear and what is maybe a false fear. Or, mm-hmm. or a fear based in a false belief or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But when people yeah. come in and their fears are pretty dang real and anything in the yeah. world can happen, it's hard to it's hard to pull that into a a, a different lens, you know. That's a yeah, that's yeah, a different yeah. conversation. So isn't it something, you know, we 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 spend so much of our lives trying to um avoid uh, uh, trying to find the quiet water and let's stay out of the white water and let's mm-hmm. avoid uh, turbulence and let's avoid crisis. Mm-hmm. And uh, very often it takes crisis to jolt us uh, out of our kind of, you know, self-absorbed reverie. And we've managed, it's amazing how we can paper over so much dysfunction in our own lives. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, until we get the gift of a crisis. Yeah. When, right? Yeah. Oh, I think that the biggest, uh, one of the biggest things in that whole illusion uh, of our behavior and our addiction, our compulsivity and all of that is that um, as long as I don't have to tell myself the truth about something, mm-hmm. um, then I can perpetuate this myth a little longer and stay in this behavior a little longer. But when the truth is inevitable, you know, whether there's, yeah you know, a consequence that is undeniable or a, a revelation or a disclosure, or 
you know, and, and the, the global situation, something happens that we can't ignore anymore. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, we have to tell ourselves the truth. And when we have to do that, um, then, <laughs> as we say, shit's going to get real. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, Well, uh, we have a guest this week who has really honed in. Uh, on this central issue of uh, finding the truth, facing the truth, saying the truth mm-hmm. uh, in, in a pretty stark way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think our listeners are going to find it interesting, maybe a little challenging, but hang in there. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a conversation that I am certain will uh, stimulate some, uh, some deep thinking. So stay with us. We'll be back on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Well, we have a guest this week who is of a special interest to me because he tends to, to track with people like me and the people I love. Uh, John Sternfels joining us today from Michigan. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, David, how did we connect with this character? He's all the way up in Michigan. Uh, this is one of the uh, wonderful reasons we always highlight our email uh, at the end of the broadcast, <laughs> because John comes from a, comes to us from a listener who said oh. uh, his work had been uh, beneficial in the listener's life and that we might want to get familiar with him and his work. And John's a therapist in, uh, as you said, Nate, Northern Michigan. And he is uh, the author of a book called A Couple's Guide to uh, to Truth and Healing. A, couple's a Partner's Guide, guide a to part- Truth and Healing. I'm sorry, A Partner's Guide to Truth and Healing. Uh, yeah, we want to get it right. Um, a Partner's Guide to Truth and Healing. And so um, John came uh, highly recommended. And so I thought, well, this sounds like an interesting uh, book and subject. And so, uh, he was, uh, gracious enough to make the time to join us today. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, well, welcome, John. I was thrilled to see that you are a certified sex addiction therapist. It's a growing, uh, group of guys, of, of folks, still not a huge segment of the therapeutic community. Um, how did you wind up? First of all, I'm curious. How did you wind up? Uh, first of all, working as a therapist, and then how did you find your way into this field? Sure. Actually, this is my second career. I uh, I left the medical sales profession, and God called me to be a therapist. Out of all things, I was in Cape Town on a short mission trip, and um, God revealed to me that He wanted me to work with the missionaries to do uh, marital counseling. A lot of the missionaries were. Uh, confiding in me and sharing their woes, if you will. And I asked uh-huh. them, so why not just contact your Sunday agency and, and ask them for help? And they said, well, if we did, they would pull us off the field. And so mm-hmm. I just felt a strong urge to uh, go to school, get my uh, license certifications. And then God revealed, no, you're not going to go on the mission field. You're actually going to open up a practice in Novi, Michigan. Wow. No. And so I was going to do marriage and family therapy. And um, the story would be is all of a sudden I'm seeing these uh, issues within the marriage. And I just felt God saying, look, either you be the expert to figure out what's going on or you're going to have to refer out. 
And I thought, well, with my background being raised by an alcoholic mother and a prescription drug abuse mother, I know addiction pretty well. I've been exposed to it all my life. Mm. And so uh, I started to investigate where am I going to go to get trained? And I wanted to get the best training possible. And I ended up with being a CSAP. And I started working with the population of sex addicts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and I do know from my uh, experience abroad many, many years ago, shoot, uh, 40 years ago now, uh, I, I interned with the field secretary for a missions organization in East Africa. And since then have uh, corresponded, connected with a lot of people who work in foreign missions. And I do know that uh, it's tremendously stressful on marital relationships, uh, living abroad in another culture, uh, and sexual temptations tend to uh, dominate. And yeah, and it can just be absolutely catastrophic uh, for that to be discovered. So situation that missionaries find themselves in is they battle the compulsion alone. There's one thing yeah, I know as a recovering sex addict, sex addict you, you battle a compulsion alone, you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. So, so these folks now have an ally in you and you connect, but, but, uh, but you're in Michigan and they are all over the globe. How do you pull that off? Yeah. So the practice in Novi obviously is attracting people within the area of Michigan. And what I found is people were all over the world starting to uh, connect with me via Zoom and looking for that specialty because they couldn't find that specialty where they were located. Mm-hmm. So that's how all that came to be. The primary, Primarily, uh, the people are from Michigan. Uh, up until two years ago, I wouldn't do face-to-face, uh, but I've chosen because of the COVID not to. Mm-hmm. But I have other clinicians, obviously, that do face-to-face in the practice, but mine is going to be through Zoom. Okay. All right. So you have a staff there, I understand. Yes. I have three other therapists uh, that are currently uh, working for me and working with the population as well. Okay. All right. And uh, sex addiction, especially. So uh, if we're talking about uh, compulsive sexual behavior of somebody who is in a committed relationship with another person, that other person is impacted by the behavior. And that other person is the one who most often is neglected, kind of left behind while the addict gets all the therapeutic attention. Um, but you, uh, is it because of your marriage and family therapy interest, the way you got started you found yourself focusing on the partner as well as the identified patient? Yeah, so it started with the CSAT, working with the uh, addict uh, himself. I realized that I'm missing part of the puzzle because he is not understanding the trauma that, again, whether it be the girlfriend, the partner, the wife, And so I said, okay, so I need to really understand this other side, the partner trauma aspect to really be effective. And I found the organization called Mm appsats.org and I got trained there. And my intention, to be honest, was not to work with partners. Mm. I just wanted to learn about that side. God got a hold of me and and said, no, you're going to be working with partners. And so that's where that evolved of kind of working with the addict and then working with the partner and, of course, working within the marriage. At that time, 
going through disclosures and polygraphs, I didn't find a real effective method. They're out there and basically they're down to, to two types. One's called a narrative method and that's where the addict writes out his narrative. He's gonna write a story, 10 pages, 20 pages, 30 pages, and, and kind of give a summary, if you will, of his acting out behaviors. Now he's in charge of his narrative. Mm-hmm. I didn't like that method, to be honest. I wanted a more structured method. And so I came up with the idea it's going to be more of specific questions. And, and through the years, listening to the partners, they actually helped me identify what questions are most important to them. Examples could be, have you had a physical affair? Have right. you had an emotional affair? And so I've contracted about 52 questions that are seen to be pretty standard in that list. So I'm going to be asking the addict these specific questions, of course, after getting the approval from the partner, because she has to author and approve what's important for her to know. A partner does not need to know anything if she does not want to know, because that could further traumatize her. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go through this list with her to assure she's okay and ready to receive the answers to these questions. Once the partner has approved those questions, I'm going to work with the addict and then get the answers to the questions. It's a little bit like interrogating, like, have you done this? Have you done that? Yes, no. And if the question is yes, such as if you've been with a prostitute, okay, how many? Mm-hmm. Where? What did you do? When did they start? When did it end? Have you been with the same prostitute multiple times? And these are things that partners have told me this is what they want to know. Through the lens of what is therapeutic for them to know is also important because they may be asking for something that really isn't therapeutic for them to know. We call it the gory details. Yeah. And that is so, so fine of a surgery is that you can't unring a bell. And so we spend a lot of time working with the partner, preparing and evaluating her ability to actually receive what she says she wants. Yes. And so that it's just very, very delicate. And sometimes we we have to have her remove that need to know because we're trying to help her by not knowing if that makes sense, because she could end up with PTSD or complex PTSD, because uh, I should say seven out of 10 partners do develop PTSD. Yeah. And sadly, not all of those seven out of 10 recover and they're stuck for life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They don't know this going in. So we, we, we try to help educate and, and best inform what is a therapeutic approach to help them. Now, that's just on the disclosure. There's many more components to this, but that's the disclosure piece. And I will tell you, John, that when I uh, entered recovery 23 years ago now, 24 years ago now, there was nobody around to help with disclosure. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do know that of the hundreds and probably thousands of partners that I have in some way related to over the years during this work, I find that there are those... And again, when I say the vast majority of cases, I work with men. So the partner is always a wife. It's a woman. Mm -hmm. Um, There are those who uh, have the mistaken belief that they're going to find uh, peace and certainty in detail. And they uh, uh, and they don't understand that um, 
they can poison for the rest of their lives uh, every room in the house, every vehicle the family has ever owned, every place they've ever gone, every friendship they've ever had. All of them are going to be connected to the infidelity in a way that triggers them uh, in a traumatic way. Uh, are you successful, John, in a, in uh, helping partners to see that that peace really is not to be found always in that direction? I'm trying to understand what the question actually is when you say the peace. I look at it as a jigsaw puzzle. Let's say there's five thousand pieces. Right. Okay. The partner, because she doesn't have all the pieces, they're just all over the place, and she's trying to con- trying to construct a picture that really represents what has been going on. We'll use the word marriage. What has been going yeah. on in the marriage, right? Right. And without the gory details, we need to get these puzzle pieces to fit so that she can find resolve and ultimately healing. Otherwise, she's still, I wonder about this. I wonder about that. Yeah. Whether it be three months from now, five months from now, 10 years from now, we want to get a complete puzzle piece. Once we get that, we have to put it through a polygraph because mm-hmm. I don't know what truth is unless we get something evidenced. And this is where uh, another shift in what I do is I empower the partner to work with us, to work with me, to decide what are the important questions regarding the disclosure. Okay. Other techniques would be the, the therapist is given the polygrapher the disclosure and the polygrapher is deciding for the partner, what are the important questions to ask? Mm. And I think it disempowers the partner. So I like to Mm -hmm. empower the partner to decide what does she want to know? Okay. Did you purposely falsify your sobriety date? Did you purposely Mm -hmm. underreport the amount of women you've been with? These are just examples. Right, 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 right. Yeah. John, do you find that, um, uh, the person struggling with the sexual compulsivity is um, often under the assumption that it, the more details they can they can roll off of themselves, that they can rid themselves of, the better they're going to feel, and therefore um, that that they'll they'll have this this big sense of relief or something, and that uh, they'll be rid of this burden they carry, these secrets, but um, maybe not realizing that their, uh, their partner is not able to absorb all that. It's a good point. So there's, there's two factors here. One is the addicts is he's going to do a a sexual history timeline. And that timeline is for him and the therapist to see the big picture of what's been going on with detail Mm -hmm. for the partner. It is the structure of these specific questions that she doesn't even know what to ask. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'll use the word, the template, the the structure is they're already pre-written and they just get reviewed with her to see if this meets her need to know certain behaviors. Okay. It's important to note that she has a right to not want to ask any question. Right. Ultimately she's in charge. She's empowered. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, the addict may want to share something that the wife says, I I don't want to hear that. Mm -hmm. Well, we got to help the addict get that off his chest, per se, in therapy. 
but don't take the garbage truck and bring it over to the driveway and dump all that stuff out. He feels better. And she's looking at the pile of garbage. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, friends, David and I are pleased to welcome to the podcast a new sponsor, Soberlink. And we're positive that you're going to love this tool for managing your alcohol recovery. In early sobriety, we often focus on what we're losing instead of what we're gaining. Soberlink, you're gaining increased accountability, a deterrent against drinking, and a tool to help you stay connected with people who care. Uh, Here's what it is. It's a really high-tech breathalyzer device with facial recognition. It allows you to share your sobriety in real time with loved ones. In case there's ever a slip, your treatment professional or anyone else you've chosen to be in your recovery circle will know immediately. Uh, More important than the technology is the brand. It is part of Soberlink's mission to break the stigma that surrounds addiction, which is why they partner with Positive Sobriety Podcast and many others in the recovery community. It's also why they specifically focus on using alcohol monitoring as a recovery tool, not for criminal or recreational purposes. There there isn't anything like it on the market. Well, together we've developed a guide called Tips for Keeping a Positive Outlook on Sobriety. And you can download it at www.soberlink.com PSP. That PSP is for Positive Sobriety Podcast. On that page, you'll also find a form to request $50 off your purchase when you're ready to try Soberlink. So uh, talk to us about the uh, uh, polygraphy piece. Sure. Once again, nobody knows what truth is. Uh, The addict, hopefully, knows what truth is because that's what he's trying to put together is this is what the truth is. And so the polygraph is just an instrument. It does not know the person. It doesn't know their income. It doesn't know where they live. It's an instrument just doing body sensations. And through this polygraph examination, the polygrapher is establishing baselines, such as, are you in novi? Well, that's a known yeah, right. truth. Are you wearing glasses? That's a known yeah. truth. They're going to go through a host of these control questions to evidence known truth and what happens to the body. And likewise, with the known lies, I want you to lie by answering the question. Of course, if it's a male, are you a female? Answer, yes. We want to see the person's disturbance by a known lie. Right. And the polygrapher is making these calculations based on what are the expected norms based on that individual. If the person had Parkinson's disease and they're sitting there and they're going through the examination, you can expect there's going to be a a lot of movement. We Mm -hmm. can establish baselines even with someone with PD. Okay, right. And so the polygrapher does their job based on, in the state of Michigan, there's four relevant questions. The entire examination is based upon four relevant questions, or I should say up to four. And the examination in the state of Michigan is 90 minutes of examination when there's only four relevant questions. The question you ask yourself is like, 
90 minutes for just four questions? Mm -hmm. Yes, because the rest of the time are all the control questions. Gotcha. Okay. And it makes it very clear when someone is speaking a lie and their tracings go way up, that mimics what happens when they do tell a lie, something's wrong. Mm -hmm. We even ask questions, have you looked for ways to fool a polygraph? For those that like to look for ways to fool a polygraph, we'll put that in the polygraph. Sure, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, right. Now, is the, uh, is the polygraph examination, is the purpose of the polygraph uh, examination primarily for the partner or primarily for the addict? Or Boy, that's a great or question. Is it equal? Yeah, I, I, it, yes. I, I love that question, by the way. Mm-hmm. Because typically it could be looked at, it's for the partner. And it's true, it is. But the way that I like to explain it, if the person was not in a relationship, they still have this disease. They still have had most likely decades of being PhDs in manipulating and lying. Right, sure. The polygraph for the addict is actually their best friend. Uh It is their best friend. This is to help them evidence they know, speak, and can evidence truth. They have something outside themselves that says, yes, I am now a truth teller. I know what my truth is. I can evidence it. I am free from the shame and embarrassment and all this other stuff. It's for the addict, comma, or new sentence. The partner needs to have assurance what was said, what was revealed, what was disclosed is in fact true, in factually true. So it is equal. It works. It's, it's best for both. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't force anybody to go into a polygraph. But if the partner says, look, I don't know what truth is. I, I need it to be evidenced. Well, we have a mechanism in which to do that. And I would say probably 9.9 out of 10 will go through the polygraph. Mm-hmm. But the polygraph's not a deal breaker uh, for getting therapy with you, is it? No. And that's another great question. So again, with the polygraph, rarely, rarely does someone pass the first time. Mm. Second time, yeah, we have a a good uh, ratio of those passing the second time. And of course, you have those outliners where they may struggle time and time and time and time and time again until they kind of get their story straight. Mm -hmm. The polygraph, we'll call it failure. All that reveals is the addict needs to learn something more about himself than he currently understands. It is not a deal breaker in all cases. It's a continuation of therapy that says, look, there's disturbance in you. We're doing therapy. And that's what we're doing. We're looking, what is this disturbance in you? And the polygraph is like the x-ray, if you will, if I could use that term. Is there disturbance in them in their truth? If there's disturbance, we've got some therapy to do. What's going on? Too much shame being triggered by a certain word in the sentence of the question on the polygraph. Mm -hmm. And so we just take them to a deeper level to find out what is the root of that disturbance? Will it be through EMDR or different modalities? We're going to look at this more holistically and say, look, okay, we need to do some deeper work here. What's going on? They don't know. 
I don't know. I don't know what the truth is. But we're going to find it. And we're going to get him to pass a poly. Yeah, yeah. I'm struck by that old familiar language in the standard readings of AA, uh, where even those with grave mental disabilities uh, can uh, recover if they have the capacity to be honest. And that really is the fundamental uh, skill. And it's the disability that all of us addicts have coming into recovery. Uh, yeah. We've been lying to each to ourselves and to other people for so long that uh, the, the truth very often is a stranger to us. Yeah. yeah. Dr. Kearns, who put the program together, Recovery Start Kit with the ITAP, he comes up with that great one short question. Do you really want this? Do you yeah. want help? Mm-hmm. Do you want yeah. to recover? Mm-hmm. And that is really a deal breaker because the person goes, well, I really don't know. Let me think about it. Mm. Yeah. Well, do you really want help? We're here to help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, John, we we use a lot of he pronouns when we talk about sex addiction. Are you seeing more women who are actually the the uh, partner who is uh, out acting out? Great question. Uh, unfortunately, because there is a population that is out there. Uh, the shame, embarrassment, the stigmas. We have very few females that seek help. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know they're out there. It, it, it might be because I'm a male therapist and they might want to uh, work with a female therapist, obviously. Uh, but the population it has to be like more than 9.5 to 1. Mm-hmm. So the female in my practice... Uh, it's not an equal. Mm-hmm. Right. We know uh, that I do. Oh, yeah. Uh, if I can switch up a little bit. Uh, I do know that in your uh, certification, in your training, the, 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 uh, the professionals that you're associated with, trauma is uh, a central focus. I'm picking up on that, that you, you, uh, you understand that at the root of this maladaptive behavior, this addictive compulsive behavior, it begins with trauma of one kind or another. And then uh, trauma spreads from active, you know, from addict to partner. And we get this. <laughs> um, talk to us, uh, if you will, a little bit about uh, trauma and how, to what degree do you see recovery as healing from trauma more than let's say, let's put it in theological terms, repentance from sin. Yeah. Okay. So look, trauma, whether it be disengaged families, rigid, controlling families, trauma with a capital T, trauma with a small case T, it still spells trauma. Mm -hmm. What one trauma is to another, there, it, it, you can't put trauma in just one category because what, like I said, what's trauma to someone else may not be trouble uh, trauma to someone else. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there's a root here. Nobody comes to my practice. I, I don't know of anybody personally that says, boy, when I grow up, I want to be an addict. Tell me which one I can do and ruin my life. 
Yeah. There's right. always a component of trauma. And that's why I think EMDR is also uh, a necessary, necessary psychotherapy that should be incorporated in not only to the partner's uh, therapy, but also for the addict's therapy. What What is in there? What is the trauma about? I had, uh, it goes back probably eight, 10 years ago, the married man in his 50s uh, came in crying because uh, he was uh, molested by his babysitter as a young boy and he was going to his grave with it. And then, you know, coming in and start talking about this trauma, uh, you know, helped him. Otherwise, he would have gone to his grave uh, with this secret shame and embarrassment and guilt. And I know how unfortunate. So, yeah, trauma is, is, is a big piece of cancer, I'll call it, that gets buried inside and people learn how to, to cope with it and not deal with it when the fact is we got to deal with it, whatever it yeah. may be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering, John, uh, do you, because you were starting out with working, you know, primarily you thought you'd work with missionaries and people on the mission field, things like that. Is your practice primarily, um, with, uh, Christian faith-based couples, or do you find that there's a big cross-section of belief systems? Okay. So the majority of my therapists are Christian and will integrate Christian principles into the therapy if the patient wants it. Mm-hmm. People of varying faiths, knowing that I'm a Christian therapist, will still come and seek help. And of course, respecting their faith walk, I don't try to put anything on them or try to convert them. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, uh, people of all faiths come in. But I, I thought it would be port- important as a, a follower of Christ that why not integrate it for those that value that? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So what can you tell us about the book? Uh, I, 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 why should uh, uh, the couples who are you know on this journey now, the one they didn't uh, plan for, but they're on the road now, uh, what it is, what is it, uh, about, what does this book bring to the journey? Well, this was kind of birthed about seven, eight years ago as being frustrated that there didn't seem to be a, a, a very clear, concise path in order to find truth and healing. Mm-hmm. And so I took it upon myself to kind of look into this a little bit more, find out what other people are doing and then getting feedback because I would get people to come to my practice who may have gone through different programs and things didn't work. And so I thought of a a structure that made sense through six steps, starting with, you know, preparing the couple and prepping them. This is the journey that's going to be required. I call it the bridge walk. We're going to go across the bridge and getting across the bridge represents here we are on this side of the land, which is dysfunctional, addictive. We want to go across this bridge and get over here where we can, if you choose to rebuild the marriage or if you're going to get divorced, at least be healthy. Don't stay on this side of the bridge where it's dysfunctional. And the steps required now is. Emotional restitution is a fancy term, but basically what that means is the addict is going to write a letter, explain to his spouse, his current awareness 
of how his addiction has affected her. Right. The emotional restitution is given the wife in this case a little glimpse. Does he even have a clue? Is yeah. he clueless or does he have an idea? Once we go through the emotional restitution, we're going to get ready for the disclosure. And that is the prep work with the partner, going through the worksheets and talking to her, preparing her and assessing her ability to actually go through a disclosure. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to prep him of what's required to go through a disclosure. And then we're going to have our session and we're going to go through all the disclosure questions. What I like about the structure of this format is at the end of the disclosure, the partner has some time to now think about and process what did she just hear. We don't rush him off to a polygraph. We don't close the disclosure down. We want to make sure she's okay. So whether it be days, weeks, or months after a disclosure, we're working with her. How is she processing? Does she have any follow-up questions as a result of what's been told to her? Because the idea is to help her bring a completeness to this horrific process of hearing the truth of what's been happening in the marriage. Yeah. So the disclosure process ends when the partner says she's satisfied with all answers. There's no more questions. At that point, she is now getting ready to do her partner impact letter. And that could be, I've, I've had one about 144 pages, about 12 <laughs> hours, not at one time, but you know, three hours here, three hours here, three hours here. And the author herself, the partner, is writing her partner impact, sharing with the husband, these are the areas of my life that have been affected by your addiction. It's therapeutic for her because she's reaching deep down inside of her soul, identifying all these wounds. The husband benefits because he's getting a deeper look into, oh my gosh, I just thought my addiction was not going to affect anybody. I didn't see it was going to affect them this bad or this much or this severe. So he gets a therapeutic experience to understand how the wife got traumatized and what she's now dealing with. She's able to identify and start working with her trauma stuff because now it's out rather than just hidden or buried. And then he's able to write his amends letter, having a greater scope and depth to the trauma that his addiction has caused. And so this awesome. whole process can take up to about six months to uh, come to fruition. So it's not going to be like, you know, a weekend and we put all this stuff together and bam, mm -hmm. off they go. It doesn't work that way. Right. In my opinion. Yeah. And so dealing with people's lives, dealing with people's marriages, the families and loved ones. I look at this as a very delicate surgery that has to be held with high excellence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And not to rush it through. Yeah. 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 Does, um, does his, his ability to hear her, her, uh, narrative about all of that, John impact how, um, maybe his incentive for sobriety or for, uh, 
maintaining a serious uh, program for himself? I mean, is this because of, as as a person that uh, certainly in my drinking days, uh, I could minimize my behavior very easily or excuse it or, you know, give my list of whys. But um, does this help him really experience the impact in a, in a way that he might have minimized? In my experience, the answer is going to be yes, because he's now faced with a few words, what is real. Mm-hmm. He's also faced with understanding self-delusion because he's sitting across from his wife. She's crying. She's broken. And he has to learn to stay present in that difficulty. If his recovery is going to work, he's got to deal with what is real. Mm-hmm. And he's got to break through self-delusion. And so most times the husband is so grateful for hearing that partner impact letter. He is learning so much more than he ever thought he could. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So John, uh, your practice is North Point Counseling. Is that correct? It is. Okay, it's uh, our folks can find you online. Our listeners can find you online at northpoint-counseling.com. Northpoint-counseling.com. Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. All Some right. people put the dash as an underscore, and I just want to make sure it's just okay. it's just, a hyphen. just a hyphen. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, is there any other way that uh, they can uh, contact you? Uh, email info info. Right. At Northpoint hyphen counseling.com phone number 248-773-8440 fantastic and how can they access your book yeah yeah the uh a partner's guide to truth and healing that's the title of the book where do we get it yeah it's only one click away everyone knows how to get to amazon you just type in a partner's guide to truth and healing it pops up there it is if you feel inclined, just push that button and it'll be delivered to you. Okay. Great. Fantastic. Easy enough. Well, thank you so much, John, for taking time today to speak with us. I appreciate uh, you reaching out. Uh, it was a pleasure. I enjoy, um, as you folks do as well, is uh, bringing information to the community of people in need and helping them find resources to heal. Mm. Awesome. Yeah. Well, All thank right. you again, John. My pleasure. All right, listeners, you. stay with us. We'll be right back on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And I am, uh, you know, I am conflicted, Nate, because I, this was a great conversation with John. And yeah. I, uh, I mean, I really appreciate their direct approach and and the the voice that they uh, offer partners who have you know been blindsided by, by mm-hmm, they, mm-hmm. you know never never thought and anticipated. But um, I you know when he when he brought up the polygraph part, I was like, oh hell, wow, that's <laughs> <laughs> that's hardcore. Ah, <laughs> you, I remember the first. Yeah, the first time I ever heard of, uh, I heard about you know the use of polygraph. To, uh, yeah, I had the same you know hell no reaction. Uh, I've never sat for a polygraph. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Allie and I were able to reestablish trust uh, without it. Mm-hmm. But I can see that, you know, since trust is, you know, that's the fundamental thing. That's the thing that gets destroyed mm-hmm. in, in, uh, in, you know, sexual betrayal, intimacy, uh, the betrayal of intimacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you got to have a foundation somewhere. Yeah. Uh, I, I do have, uh, I've had plenty of conversations with guys in the Samson society. Well, I've, I've had some conversations that perhaps that's more accurate to say it that because it's not yet a widespread practice, mm-hmm. but I have had conversations with, uh, with guys in Samson who have uh, really come to embrace the polygraph as a friend mm-hmm. who have said that it has helped them to get honest and to stay honest mm-hmm. and has given, helped them to rebuild, first of all, credibility and on the basis of credibility, some trust mm-hmm. with a spouse. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you're right, man. That is hardcore stuff right there. Yeah. Well, I think one of the one of the first questions, at least that I hear from people is, you know, from the partner is, well, what else don't I know? Yeah, you know, sure. That that's like the next question. Well, I know we caught you in this, but what else don't I know? Now, yeah, yeah. what else is there? And what about what about? And um, I liked the way John navigated the um, the the kind of helping the couple build parameters around what is really needed to know and the potential for re-traumatizing and the potential yeah. for over-informing. Because yeah, like you said, yeah. I, I think initially everybody wants to, thinks they want to know everything, yeah, you know, yeah, 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 um, yeah. and um, th- that's not always really a, uh, well, it's really never possible and it's not always advisable to try, I don't think. Yeah, um, yeah. The capacity I- to hold that. I do really appreciate, though, his structured approach to uh, disclosure and the uh, the impact statement that the that the spouse uh, is able to make and and give that as a gift to the addict. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do sometimes wonder how th- whether things could have gone easier for Allie and me because I want to tell you those early years of recovery were hard and really ugly for us, mm-hmm. and we didn't have any help navigating it Mm. Um, to have, you know, an empathetic, compassionate, uh, but uh, someone to provide direction and guidance through that process and not push it through. I appreciated the fact, I appreciated his statement that this isn't something that's done in a weekend. Right. 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 Yeah. But but nonetheless, there is a strategy, there is a method, and we're going to move through it. Uh, I'm grateful that this kind of help is now available. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I um, If we had had more time, I would have liked to have asked if we, um, how he sees the marriage and the marriage relationships uh, needing to adjust. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, is this, a is this also an, an opening conversation into what isn't happening in the marriage or what right, is happening right. in the marriage? I know that yeah. that's not, that's not the marriage's fault that somebody is yeah. acting yeah. out in a particular way, but I'm just saying that, um, you know, it ha- in sobriety, I mean, it's disruptive, you know, recovery is yeah. yeah. disruptive. Uh, if there's my, if there's one caveat, 
to uh, to this for me if there's one thing that i that i have seen is that um the polygraph can loom so large that uh the focus is uh re- restricted strictly to the sexual behavior mm-hmm. and uh so the husband feels that as long as he can pass that sobriety question at the uh and, and for some couples, I mean, they're going to go annually for, you know, for a polygraph examination. Are you still mm-hmm. sober? Mm-hmm. As long as he has not crossed the line with the sexual behavior, he's golden. Mm, yeah. Right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, Allie told me, you know, she's told me uh, more than once that what wounded her more deeply uh, then my sexual infidelity was the condescension with which I treated her during my years of active addiction. Mm. And that condescension can return mm-hmm. even if I'm not acting out. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it can be yeah. equally devastating. But if I can show my report card that I passed the polygraph and I'm not dealing with anything else, mm-hmm. uh, then I would say the prospects for a happy marriage are not all that good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And when you get into this whole um, area of sexual addiction, Nate, um, you know, it's so easy for this to become, and I, I, I hate to say it because I, immediately I can hear people's reaction, but it's, it's immediately um, a moralized thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, well, you cheated on me. Uh, yeah. You had sex in some form or fashion with someone else or many people mm-hmm. or, you know, the, the internet, your mistress or whatever it is. Uh, but, but because it's, uh, of a particular nature, then there's a moral thing that everybody mm-hmm. jumps on and says, well, I haven't done that. So you're the problem. And, right, yeah. um, and so I wonder if, um, there's a way to, to help partners, understand mm-hmm. that once this becomes rooted in the compulsivity and it becomes their their pain management their mm-hmm. you know their drug of choice as we might call it um i wonder if there's a way that we can help um partners uh, try to see this beyond just this physical uh, infidelity mm-hmm. or yeah. is that impossible yeah. you know yeah 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 uh, I don't know. Uh, I haven't sat in their shoes. I do know that it is terribly painful and distressing mm-hmm. for uh, a partner to find out that the relationship they thought they had, they didn't have. The person they thought they knew, they didn't fully know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, to now kind of reestablish the relationship is going to be a challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh but what I have seen over and over and over again is that when that relationship does get rebuilt, <laughs> the finished product is so much better than what they had <laughs> yeah. to begin with that couples are actually grateful that they went through addiction and recovery. Mm-hmm. Allie and I are, and mm-hmm. I've had many, many people over the years tell me that, uh, you know, as tough as that was, they'd take it again to get what they have today. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been a uh, challenging conversation, a good conversation this week. It's good seeing you, David. We've well, got more conversations 
coming up in the weeks ahead. We you do. You filled up a calendar there, man. We got some we're, good. I'll tell you, we're getting there. It's uh, Yeah. Yeah. Got some good guests on the way. We do. So uh, that wraps it for this week. Although. A little uh, better help. <laughs> yeah. I don't think we've mentioned better help. We, I was about to close it without uh, yeah. talking well, about. We got yeah. to tell better. Our first but, courageous sponsor. Uh, that's ahead. right. Our flagship, betterhelp.com. And uh, folks, you can take advantage of betterhelp.com if you would like to have a counseling experience, uh, but a little bit more privatized and something that's a little bit more accessible for you uh, at home and available at your convenience. Uh, BetterHelp.com is licensed therapists and counselors that are there for you on uh, your uh, level of um need for change. Uh, they deal with everything from depression and anxiety to uh, any kind of uh, other related behavioral issue, emotional issue that you would go to any other traditional counseling service for. Um, they are there for you if you need to change therapists, if you don't have the perfect fit. Uh, they're glad to help you find the person that you relate to most. And so if you go to betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety, you'll receive a discount on your initial sign up. And it also helps us know our, our resources are helping you. So betterhelp.com positive sobriety and get unstuck. All right. And listeners, I'd love to hear your feedback on this episode. Uh, how did it strike you? What do you think? Also, John, we found this guest, John Sternfels, through uh, a suggestion of a listener. If you uh, can, uh, would like to suggest somebody else who would be a good guest on the podcast, you can always drop us a line at positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com. Well, that's a wrap for this week. Until next time, I'm Nate. And I'm David. And we are your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer, Rex Schnelli. Music by Rex Schnelli. Theme music by Matt Ulrich. Uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett. Uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 